Happy New Year, dear listeners. As you may have noticed, we were on break last week, but we returned today. Our triumphant, not debut, our triumphant 2014 debut. Welcome to the Cowries and Rice podcast, the second best China Africa podcast you ever heard. Broadcasting from the heart of global China Africa research, Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Winslow Robertson. I will be joined by the pragmatic Dr. Nkemjika Kalu. Dr. Kalu, a very happy 2014 to you. What are your New Year's resolutions, if any? Hmm, that's a hard one, mostly because I'm anti-resolution, because I just don't find it necessary to disappoint myself and the rest of the world. But I do want this to be a better year than last year. So more awesomeness in 2014 is my New Year's resolution. (laughs) Well, you're already full of awesome, so it's going to be tough tough to top. But, But yeah. The Calories and Rice podcast resolutions are just to be better, more professional, and funnier. So uh, this episode, we'll see if we can actually do that. Today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, Africa Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform that provides the most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The form incorporated in the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchange among diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. We begin January by looking at China-South Sudan relations, combining a month-long focus on one country, which we've only done once to date, with a rather unfortunate set of current events. As you might have heard, South Sudan descended into violence on December 15, as former Vice President Riek Machar, and I'm going to probably mispronounce everybody's name, just a forewarning, Vice President Machar's forces clashed in the South Sudanese capital, Juba, with the National Army led by President Salah Kiir. Machar was sacked in July after expressing interest in running for president himself. Perhaps most distressingly is the speed at which other cities and regions experienced violence, showing signs of deep divisions within the country. The conflict is complicated, and while the violence does have an ethnic component, it is not solely an ethnic conflict but reflects long-standing political cleavages. Those sentences exhaust almost everything I know about South Sudan, so I wanted to ask an actual expert to talk about South Sudan security issues and how they relate to China. For that, I reached out to Thomas Wheeler who is an expert on Chinese security issues in Africa, especially related to involvement in South Sudan. His articles have been published in Global Review, The Diplomat, etc. He is also a really nice dude who has helped me out a number of times in the past whenever I had security questions. Thomas, it is great to have you on, though I wish it was under happier circumstances. Happy New Year! Thank you. Happy New Year to you too. And thanks for having me on. Uh, Any time. First of many, we hope. before we begin, could you tell us about what you are working on now? Are there any publications, past, present, and future, you wish to highlight? Uh, well, at the moment, I'm working with Safe World, which is an international NGO. We're based in London, but we work in several different areas of the world on issues of conflict prevention and uh, peace building, uh, including in South Sudan, where we have a large program uh, with you know, plenty of people who have much more expertise than me on South Sudan. But my main involvement in in, in South Sudan has been through the lens of our China program, which is looking at China's engagement in conflict-affected states, especially looking at how Chinese development assistance and economic cooperation can help uh, contribute to longer-term stability and and peace over uh, 
over a different context. So we've been working with several Chinese think tanks and researchers on that. And uh, maybe at the end I could suggest some publications which go into more detail on that. Please, please suggest those publications. That would be fantastic. Uh, but, wow, that, that, sound, that sounds really great. I, I'm sure what's going on in South Sudan does not make you too happy. No, certainly not. I mean, I think exactly how you said, I think people have been quite taken back by the speed of the escalation and the deterioration of, 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 the, uh, of the situation. I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, it, it started quite recently on December 15th. Um, the trigger uh, to the conflict was an armed skirmish between troops in Juba. Um, whether this was a coup or not is open to question. But what isn't open to question is exactly as you said, it's escalated very fast. I think around a thousand people have reportedly been killed. Uh, the UN is saying that more than 190,000 people have been displaced. And the fighting occurred mainly in two of South Sudan's ten states, which is Jongle, which has the largest population and has a long history of conflict and insecurity, and also Unity State, uh, which is the main oil producing state. But we've also seen violence in Akinal State and in and around Juba. Uh, the two main actors who are part of this uh, both originate from the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, which was the main rebel movement or main rebel group uh, during the second Sudanese civil war from 1983 to 2003. And of course, in very recently, in, in July 2011, South Sudan became an independent country. Although it's not clear to put people on different sides, uh, in, in very broad terms, on the one side we have the official government and the military, uh, ultimately under the control of President Salva Kiir. And on the other side, we have rebel forces made up largely of soldiers uh, who have left the military to fall behind the leadership of ex-Vice President uh, Riyak Mashur, as you mentioned. Though, you know, I think there's many different actors involved in this, and who is and who is not state or government is, and I think always has been sort of blurred in South Sudan. Well, you basically answered the first question I was going to pose, um, so that was, that was tremendous. So... You know, as we're, we've, we're uh, I guess, a podcast that's really interested in the, the nexus of Chinese and African engagement, what could you um, just talk a little bit about China's role in South Sudan historically? China's been, I mean, even before the, the, na the, the nation of South Sudan was um, created, China's had a very, what's the word I'm looking for, controversial China's had a, a controversial position um, as compared to some of the other world leaders with regards to um, Sudan. Also, I believe that China was not a fan of the referendum on South Sudan's independence, even though they did, as, as they as they want to begin um, working and establishing um, diplomatic relations with the new government, you know, immediately after that government was um, announced. And they also have been a part of the pipeline arrangements and negotiations between Sudan and South Sudan. Can you talk a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, as you point out, China has, you know, really a long role in, in Sudan and South Sudan, especially in Sudan when it was an independent country in, in 1956. Um, and throughout the period, to different extents, has had a big role. But I think that role really grew and, and expanded and became crucially important around 1996 uh, when CNPC, which is the China National Petroleum Company, opened one of its first overseas operations uh, 
which was important for China because in the early 90s it went from being a net exporter of oil to a net importer of oil. And so Sudan suddenly took on a very important role. And I think it's interesting that Sudan in that regard, although of course China has had a long engagement across the African continent, um, this sort of economic and the depth of that economic relationship kind of came ahead of maybe China's engagement in other African countries as we've seen across the continent. Then, you know, within South Sudan, which itself became independent in 2011, I think China plays a very big role. Uh, the main aspect of this, and as is the case in, in, in Sudan, is an economic role, which is tightly tied uh, with, with, with oil. Uh, CNPC is the largest foreign operator in South Sudan's oil industry. And of course, most of this oil has been, um, most of this involvement is left over from pre-independence days. So from that, the operations in 1996, the expansion of operations, the financing and building of the two pipelines that go through Sudan to Port Sudan. In July 2011, when South Sudan became independent, 75% of Sudan's oil was left in South Sudan. So new contracts were written up with the new government in, uh, in Juba, but these were the same oil fields, the same, uh, the same, many of the same companies and the same pipelines. And oil is clearly very important for South Sudan. Uh, as many people know, it accounts for about 98% of government revenues. So that oil aspect of the relationship is crucially important. And in that way, you know, we can see China as having a very important role in that, in that regard. Chinese companies, though, are also active in other areas of the economy, um, especially in the infrastructure sector. There are many, many Chinese companies uh, doing infrastructure jobs there. I think there's over 60 MOUs have been uh, agreed between the government of South Sudan and Chinese companies for the construction of roads, uh, dams, um, uh, telecommunications infrastructure, electricity infrastructure. So in that way, that's also a really important role, especially given the development challenges and the infrastructure challenges South Sudan faces as a new state. So the ability of these Chinese companies to help you know, build the actual hardware of a new state is quite important. And these are state companies, uh, such as Sino Hydro, but also non-state companies. And we also see small and medium enterprises, so some smaller Chinese companies, down to you know individual Chinese businessmen, for example, running hotels or small businesses. So there's really a, a, a wide array of different economic actors. But oil and infrastructure, I'd say, are the two important ones. Then China is also a really important provider of development finance in some ways. So like other donors, it does provide some grant aid. Uh, and while this is lower than traditional donors, such as the US, EU, UK, Norway, who are the biggest traditional providers of what the OECD would uh, would, would define as aid, um, that China does actually provide more grant aid to South Sudan than it does to other African countries. So if you look at, if, if you speak to them about where they spend their actual grant aid, actually South Sudan is a very, very big one. And this comes in the form of aid in kind, so medical teams going to South Sudan, malaria nets, vehicles being donated, but also interestingly enough, in direct budget support to the government of South Sudan and also training for government of South Sudanese officials to visit China and be trained. So that's something that you do see in other countries, but I think is especially noticeable in South Sudan. But beyond aid, the main form of funding is concessional and non-concessional loans uh, to the government of South Sudan for projects that are implemented and built by Chinese companies. And of course, you'll be very familiar with that kind of model uh, that you know, we've seen in other countries. There's been talk of a $2 billion loan uh, in the pipeline for the government of South Sudan to finance infrastructure projects. 
that some have suggested would be an infrastructure for oil loans, so it would be repaid in, in, in oil revenues. And $2 billion is a big number. Uh, in 2012-2013, the total aid, and this is aid, so it's uh, you know, we're comparing apples and pears here, from traditional donors was only $1.4 billion. So that would be an important one, uh, an important sort of area of financing. And some examples of existing Chinese financing include uh, Juba Airport, under a preferential buyer's credit that will be repaid from future airport revenues. And hydropower and road projects have also been agreed on or are close to being agreed on uh, with negotiations over a special facility, which is a line of credit which is not necessarily tied to one project but would be paid back uh, in future oil revenues. Uh, yeah, you mentioned the referendum. And yeah, it's interesting. China is traditionally very reluctant to endorse secessionism overseas because of its own internal domestic issues. In fact, you know, the three evils in, 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 in Chinese uh, discourse, there are three evils. One is terrorism, one is uh, religious extremism, and the third is separatism. However, when I was working with some colleagues on a Safe World report, they looked at China and conflict-affected states, and this included a chapter on Sudan and South Sudan. We decided to call it between principle and pragmatism. So Beijing's response to the South's referendum and its eventual split for Sudan was very much pragmatic. Uh, it even sent observers to uh, the referendum, which I think signaled a degree of endorsement to the process. And it was also very quick to upgrade its consulate in Juba to a full embassy, and it was very quick to recognize the new state officially. I think Beijing really knew which way the wind was blowing, uh, especially since a 2007 trip actually of Salva Kiir to Beijing. And he reportedly made it very clear that South, South Sudan was traveling in the direction of independence. And he laid out in very clear terms the geography of the oil uh, in, the, in what was then one Sudan. And I think despite some mutual suspicion, especially on behalf of the SPLM, uh, given China's close past relations with Khartoum and its, its role in, uh, in, in the conflict before, diplomatic relations between Juba and Beijing have improved uh, significantly since independence with frequent delegations in both directions. I think oil, uh, Beijing's influence on Khartoum, Chinese infrastructure companies, uh, the perceived depth of Chinese, uh, Chinese finance all mean that there are some very practical reasons for the relationship uh, being a healthy one for both partners. And I think, in fact, you know, Sudan and now South Sudan has been a very challenging context, uh, driving foreign policy change and adaptation and evolution for Beijing. For example, being forced to act as a mediator and a heavyweight diplomatic actor on a conflict that is really on the other side of the world has not been without challenges for Beijing, but I think it's been forced to do this and it's been forced to build up a capacity and a capability to do this. And as you mentioned, it has played a really important diplomatic role in relationships, um, in relations between Khartoum and Juba, uh, especially as tensions have flared over the last few years over issues to do with oil or the invasion of uh, Heglik Panthao. And I think capacity and experience to conduct this diplomacy has increased from this experience. And I think it's confidence to play this role, perhaps in other contexts, uh, not only on the African continent, but perhaps even in the Middle East and in other periods in the future. I think its confidence has increased. And I think this is really important. And just as Sudan was important for Chinese oil companies with the expansion of CNPC to being a global oil giant, um, diplomatically for the MFA has been very important for being a more confident diplomatic actor. We shouldn't overstate what this means for China's engagement in African security issues. Um, it's been reluctant to play this role elsewhere in Africa. It still sticks very firmly to the non-interference line. 
And the fact that it played a mediating role between Khartoum and Juba shouldn't be seen as bending non-interference because, as officials in Beijing will tell you, this is an issue between two sovereign states. It's not an issue of internal security. It's an international peace and security issue, and therefore very much on Beijing's mandate, especially as a UN Security Council uh, permanent member. Another massively exhaustive answer, or great, great to hear. Uh, how has China been reacting to the crisis in South Sudan? You know, we read in the Global Times and Al Jazeera that China is attempting to mediate the conflict. Does China have the cachet to do that? You were just talking about China has has helped mediate South Sudan and Sudan, but this, you know, South Sudan internal issues. That, that is, well, maybe that is interference, perhaps. How, do, how does China fit in with other mediators, such as the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, uh, the, the East African bloc that's trying to work in, and, and the U.S.? Does, does mediation count as interference? Sure. Um, I think we've seen Beijing was a little bit slow uh, to react, not as fast as other countries, but very soon its spokesman of the MFA was making statements and stuff. And I think that was promising, a show that China was engaged. And I think they've been watching this situation just like other international actors have been uh, very closely, and they've been aware of the of the context. Uh, Beijing's number one concern, top line issue, has been the protection of Chinese citizens. Uh, this has been front and center of official statements, where you see statements which you haven't actually seen in other conflicts, where you see the Chinese MFA calling for calm, calling for talks, as it often does in case of crisis, but also calling for the protection of Chinese citizens and statements, and that's citizens and interests, and that's quite interesting. And the reason why as well, like all other countries, just as the US and the UK were worried about this, it is a top priority for China. But also, I think, especially the MFA, uh, is concerned about domestic pressure. And I think the, the party overall is concerned over what kind of a reaction would be in Chinese press, especially in Chinese internet and, and social media sites, if there was some kind of an attack or some kind of uh, a tragedy involving Chinese citizens. And expectations on China now is the world's second largest economy, is a rising power, expectations on it to be able to react and protect its own citizens. So I think they are quite concerned about that. Um, and they've also had some bad experiences, especially in Sudan and South Sudan, with kidnapped Chinese workers. There are also economic interests at stake. Uh, oil is the top one, but also the interests of Chinese companies that have invested in operating there. There's also its reputational interest. And I think another thing that will be on Beijing's mind is, is pressure coming from the AU, coming from IGAD, coming from Western countries, saying, you're a big actor, you're a big country, you need to do something. Um, at the same time, when we're talking about China and South Sudan, you know, it's, you know, I'm sure as you're well aware, it's not a monolithic company. The companies will have their own concerns, so issues over their workers, insurance, future costs. The MFA will have its concerns over diplomatic issues. The Ministry of Commerce will be thinking about perhaps future aid commitments. The PLA will be thinking about its peacekeepers. Uh, two Indian peacekeepers were killed. They're probably very worried about the safety of their peacekeepers. Exim Bank, the main financer of African development projects, might be thinking, well, this big loan we've just agreed, you know, what does this mean for us? So there's different Chinese actors. The main response so far has been very much a diplomatic one. Uh, Ambassador Zhang, who's the special representative for African affairs and the special envoy for Sudan and South Sudan, has been sent uh, both to Juba and Addis Ababa. And it's interesting that this very position was actually created uh, in response to the Darfur crisis, you know, having a special envoy on Sudan as the EU, as the UK, as the US does. 
um, is something that, you know, and having a special envoy for African affairs was created by Sudan. So again, we see it as a context in which China is, is learning. The main diplomatic statement has been a call for both sides to stop fighting, a call for talks. But broader than this has been this idea of African solutions to African problems. And in this way, we have seen Beijing encouraging EGAD, uh, the, interna in the regional uh, intergovernmental authority on development, to play a leading role and saying, you know, it's the, it's the neighboring states in EGAD that need to really lead the resolution of this. China's just going to support that. And beyond this, backing the African Union. Having said this, uh, Beijing has offered to mediate and to directly mediate between both parties, if invited. So I think that's quite an important thing, especially as you say, given it is an internal conflict. That is a step further than mediating between two countries. And it has reportedly reached out to parties on both sides and, and communicated directly with them. Whether China has the capacity uh, to carry out sort of high-level mediation, um, I don't know, is open to question, but I think you know, it possibly is in a position certainly to give a very strong and consistent message. Also, whether China would see this as interfering, I think is open to question, because I think China would say, well, we have legitimate interests and we have been asked uh, to mediate. And that's something they said, you know, Ambassador Zhang said very clearly, even we are invited. So therefore, it wouldn't be interference for them to play that mediating role if they're invited by both parties. But I think that's unlikely. I think it's more likely that they will support the uh, African Union and, and EGAT to play a leading role. What is quite relatively new is Ambassador Zhang in his statement, he suggested that China could share its, uh, and I'll quote here, its traditional wisdom of resolving conflict. And this is something that is very new, but you're starting to hear in Beijing a bit more, whereas you have scholars saying that China's experience in the last hundred years, coming out of a civil war, its turmoil, its internal politics, maybe it has something to teach other countries. And that's something in the past, you know, in China-Africa relations is generally something they're quite reluctant to talk about, a Beijing model, China's own experience. But here we see a more confident China saying, hey, maybe there are some lessons that could be learned. At the same time, they're very quick to say China's model can't sim you know, be simply copied and South Sudan should work out its <laughs> own way and China will support this. But I think that's an interesting thing to watch and something that is a bit new. And on partnership, very quickly, partnership with others. Uh, recent engagement on conflict between Khartoum and Juba has, from what I understand, been an area where US, UK, EU and China have all worked together actually quite well. There's been much better communication. Uh, they've been largely on the same messages, and this is because they have largely the shared, same shared interests uh, in that conflict. And I think we'll see that again here within South Sudan. All of these big international actors have the same interests. And Ambassador Jong, again, in his statements, has made very clear, really stressed uh, that he believes all countries have an important role uh, to play here. And he stated very clearly that China is willing to work with others. So that very clear openness to it. Uh, other actions China has taken diplomatically, it's a permanent member of the UN Security Council, so it's obviously signed off on statements, signed off on the decision to increase peacekeeping uh, forces to South Sudan to 12,500 troops. There are also, of course, several hundred Chinese peacekeepers in South Sudan itself. They're not combat uh, troops, they're mainly medical staff, engineers, uh, a large contingent of police peacekeeping ones. And at the moment, they're helping with refugees, providing security in refugee camps, providing aid, uh, providing medical assistance and humanitarian assistance. And another interesting thing was that the Chinese Red Cross was quite quick to come out and offer aid to South Sudan, uh, humanitarian aid. And this wasn't directly uh, through operations on the ground, but through the International Red Cross. But I think the actions of Chinese uh, NGOs as humanitarian actors is also an interesting thing to watch over the next few years.
And I think finally, you know, in South Sudan will be an interesting context to see how China tries to contribute to longer term stability, to longer term state building and, and peace building efforts. Um, and I think, again, just as I've sort of been saying, I think it will be a context of learning and, and, and change in foreign policy for China. Dang. Yes. That, uh, once again, another super meaty answer, although I, I, I do want to point out Ambassador Zhong Jianhua is the Forrest Gump of China-Africa relations in that he's going to be in every major event and he's somebody always to watch out for. I don't know a direct... Uh, direct analogy, but he is a, he, Ambassador Zhang is is someone to always look out for, and and a very canny diplomat, an an, an excellent um, uh, an, an excellent diplomat, and and from from everything I've I've read, uh, Dr. Kalu, what, anything that that you want to ask? Yeah, um, I think that it's quite fascinating um, to think about China's response to this situation, especially when you think about the fact that in some ways there's some parallels to, um, you know, to aspects of the conflict in South Sudan and aspects of China's own internal challenges with some of the, the different people groups and different regions of China. Do you think that there's, um, there'd be any sort of um, repercussions or implications for Beijing domestically as a result of this crisis? Do you think that um, there might be some lessons there or would this change um, China's response to um, to independence or um, what's the word I'm looking for like sectioning when when um, good heavens secessions I think is the word I'm looking for yeah um, yeah you know what 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 are your thoughts on the the domestic position of the central Chinese government you know based off of this crisis and some of the ways that things are playing out in international politics right now yeah. I mean, I think it's a really interesting question, um, and you know, I don't have a, a clear answer. I mean, there were many, I think, within China who, you know, off the record officials or openly, you know, think tankers and researchers who would say, you know, who have said when they've seen the problem South Sudan has faced over the last few years, have said, well, you know, we told you so. You know, this was a bad idea, and there will probably be some people in Beijing today saying that again. You know. This was a bad idea, and there will be some people who will seek to make political capital out of this and say, independence is not a way to stability. Unity is the way to stability, which I think is, you know, it could be interesting. On the other hand, I'd say people such as you know Ambassador Zhang and 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 the staff in the embassy there and people who know the situation well will understand that South Sudan's independence is not the cause of this conflict. Um, though they might, you know, admit that it's not a solution for conflict either. I think the main reasons for opposing separatism will continue to be domestic. And that will just be, you know, that will be the main priority. And, and despite what happens, you know, what's going on in the international uh, arena, I don't think will really affect that position. I mean, that's, you know, it's such a huge issue with, within China and for the party that, it, you know, it won't be affected. They will continue, I think, to bang that drum that it is one of the three evils that separatism is, is not good for stability, um, but for domestic reasons. But one final interesting thing is that there are people within the Central Party School, uh, which is the main think tank of the, of the Communist Party, who have been going overseas and researching uh, separatist movements and and, and new, newly independent states and trying to understand, you know, how separatist conflicts have been managed, um, you know. So in that regard, they're not completely disconnected. There will be some people looking at this with interest. 
Oh, oh okay. Tom, um, do you have any closing thoughts before we go on uh, recommendations? Not really. I mean, I think, yeah, as I've said before, I think South Sudan is a really interesting context to examine Chinese foreign policy, but also, you know, Chinese companies and different Chinese actors, because it is especially a challenging one. And because of essentially the oil, but other interests, citizens, reputation, political pressure, it's somewhere where they're forced, forced to act. And I think, you know, there'll be many in Beijing looking at how the embassy and, and how the MFA handled uh, the protection of Chinese citizens. And I think it would have been a real challenge for the embassy. Uh, but I think South Sudan and this, this crisis will be a case study they'll, they'll look at and say, have we got better at this? Because there has been a big push to get better at this, uh, protecting Chinese citizens, especially after the experience of Libya and, and, and other places. And then I think also it will be interesting to watch, you know, how South Sudan makes it clear that it's harder and harder for China to stay out of out of difficult things, out of conflicts. Um, and there is a need to promote short-term stability through crisis diplomacy, as they're doing, but also longer-term stability, you know, through development assistance, uh, providing conflict-sensitive development assistance, post-conflict reconstruction and state building. And the, the evolution of this longer-term thinking and approach to, to peace and security issues overseas will be, you know, fascinating to watch. And I think South Sudan will continue to be, uh, you know, an important learning environment for, for, for Chinese foreign policy. Again, wow. Um, I sh- could, should we call South Sudan like China's training wheels for Africa? <laughs> maybe. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, maybe some people want to throw in the towel and say this is this is too difficult. And I don't think you know we should you know overstress uh, how important Sudan and South Sudan are. Uh, they're certainly not as important as you know neighboring countries. Angola. Or Angola, yeah. I mean, oil-wise, is, is significantly uh, a bigger provider. I think is a much larger uh, source of source of oil. You know, um, and if you're a company, you're, you know, you're looking at these places and saying, uh, do we keep investing here, or do we, you know, is this really somewhere where it's worth the headache? Well, with with that, we're gonna smoothly transition onto recommendations. Tom, you are our guest, and you sound like you have a bevy of things to recommend. So. Do it. Uh, yeah, I mean, for people who are interested on in China and South Sudan, there's people who actually know uh, far, far more than farther more than me. But uh, if people wanted to read up some things on it, uh, International Crisis Group (ICG) did a great report in 2012 called "China's New Courtship in South Sudan." There's also someone called uh, Dr. Dan Large, who's based at SOAS, and he wrote something. Uh, for the South African Institute of International Affairs called Between the CPA and Southern Independence, China's Post-Conflict Engagement in Sudan, which is a really great paper that's really uh, gets to the heart of the issues. And then a final paper is something published by Safer World, my organization, which is a collection of essays by several Chinese academics and several South Sudanese academics and some international experts looking at uh, China and South Sudan and especially oil and security um, and that's on the Safe World website. It's called Oil, Security, and Community Engagement, uh, a collection of essays on China's growing role in South Sudan. Terrific, terrific. Dr. Kalu? I have two recommendations, um, a little different for me, actually. The first one was an email that a South Sudanese friend of mine sent, um, and it's a link to um, change, a change.org petition for um, for peace in South Sudan, um, 
having lived in many countries, my 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 position in political activism tends to be um, a bit of a fair weather friend, depending <laughs> on the situation. Um, but um, if if you know, I all that to say, I do want peace in South Sudan and a, a real resolution to the conflict. And if you are a signer of online petitions, um, we'll give you that link. Um, and then my second recommendation is a short video that The Guardian UK um, had posted late last year by, um, I think it's by Chuatel Ijiofor, and I butcher his name even though he's Nigerian like me. <laughs> my apologies. Um, but it's called Columbite Tantalite, and it's set in, um, well, supposed to be set in Congo, and it's an interesting conversation on conflict in Africa and um, the resource curse, and um, it's it's a 12-minute video. It's shot very well, um, thought-provoking, so I definitely enjoyed that, and I would recommend that. And those are my recommendations this week. Awesome. Uh, well, I, I only have one, and it's uh, by Daniel Howden, or Hoden, um, and he's also writing on The Guardian, so The Guardian uh, has, has two recommendations. Congrats to them. It's called How Hollywood Cloaked South Sudan and Celebrity and Fell for the Big Lie, in quotations. Now, the piece is very, very provocative. I don't agree with it, and it has a little bit of a I told you so tone to it, but it is really interesting uh, look at at the creation of South Sudan and and whether um, the conflict with uh, the government of, of Khartoum was was as, as big as, as international players made it to be. Now, I, I believe it, it it was big, and and though I, I can't speak to the, 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 the necessity of the referendum because I'm not uh, Sudanese or South Sudanese, but this is a very provocative piece. They got a lot of they got a lot of people reading it, and I think it's it's definitely worth reading. And to to your point, Tom, about some of the Chinese voices who were were not fans of the referendum, I thought I thought there were official Chinese voices who, I, I mean, back when I could read Chinese fairly decently, I I mean, I read some things where like South Sudan is a creation of the U.S. It's a myth. It shouldn't even exist. And I was like, what? How come nobody's talking about this? And they're by um um I think military um thinkers but i i can't find the link anymore for the life of me but man i mean there was some real salt being thrown towards south sudan but i i don't know whether it was official policy or not um and and when i was reading this piece which seemed sort of like south sudan is a myth created by the u.s i i thought oh man chinese people are really going to enjoy this yeah yeah i think it's a really i mean i read that piece as well and it's definitely controversial but uh I think it's an important piece to read, you know, whether you agree with it or not, having perhaps a slightly different perspective on, on, on things and how they're going, you know. And I think his overall message that sometimes you do get trapped in narratives, uh, you know, is, is, is an interesting one. You, no, it, 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 it def, it's definitely, definitely interesting. Um, and as people who, who do China-Africa stuff, there's a lot of narratives about China and Africa as well. And, and, yeah. and so it's, it's something I definitely sympathize with. Uh, before we sign off, Tom, how do people find you on the interwebs? Uh, do you have a website or a Twitter account that you would like to share with us? Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can find me 
with uh, my username is at TJA Wheeler, W H E E L E R. What's the J A for? I o- uh, those are middle initials, Joseph and Olden. Okay, because I always thought you were like TJ Wheeler for a long time, and I, it, it was hard for me to find you on Twitter sometimes, so I apologize. But okay. this TJ Wheeler, I think, was taken. All <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and what do you tweet about? How active are uh, you? All kinds of things, but I guess the thing I'm really interested in is, well, as you might tell, is China, but also other rising powers, and you know, how they engage in, in states where there's conflict and insecurity. Because um, I feel, you know, conflict is the, is, 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 you know, it's a continuation of politics by other means, and these are often the most, you know, kind of complex, difficult environments, and, and it's where you see powers really being tested uh, and evolving. But maybe that's not true at all. Maybe that's just because it's what I work on. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, Dr. Kalu, how do people find you? I tweet also at Nkem E. Kalu, and I tweet on Africa stuff, and um, it's like politics, health news, all sorts of things, and American football, because go Huskers. Um, and I also blog on my own blog, and we've had this conversation several times. I never remember what my blog address is, but that's fine, because you can find my blog post also on calriesandriceblogspot.com. <laughs> it's nkem.wordpress.com, I'm pretty sure, but yes, yeah. You can also find whatever she writes on, on, on calories and rice. I can be found on calories and rice. Uh, it's calriesrice.blogspot.com, and my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R. Uh, I tweet about China Africa news, random stuff uh, for thrown in, and and actually I think I, I'm, I think I formally met you, Tom, over Twitter. I think that was the first time I actually interacted with you directly. Um, Indeed. Yet, yet to yet to meet in person. Uh, sadly, yes, I, 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 man, I would love to go to swinging London town, but it's <laughs> probably not in the cards this year. But um, but anyways, that's it. Uh, all right, that is about it for today's episode. We would like to thank uh, Tom or T J T J A Wheeler for joining us this afternoon slash evening. Um, we would like to thank African Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. We applied to put it up on the BlackBerry Network. And if you have any recommendations about where else we should post it, we are listening. Tom, are there any other podcast websites or mechanisms that we should know about? Um, not really. What, on China, Africa? or uh, Just places to put up uh, podcasts. Uh, no, I'm, not, I'm not a podcast uh expert or even knowledgeable person <laughs> but um i like i think your blog's great by the way yes a fan so, no, I, I really mean that and i think the podcasts are great and i think it's uh i would say of equal merit to other china africa podcasts out there china blogs. absolutely thank so, you i mean that yes thank you so much that's that's super sweet you know what for that we're gonna invite you on again sometime <laughs> in the future Oh, we'd also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.